Hey, we're continuing our series going through the book of 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bible with you, you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That's where we're at today, where we'll work our way through this chapter. Series is called Christianity Over Culture. And we recognize we live in a culture that doesn't honor God, doesn't believe in God necessarily. And so uh, as Christians, we're called out of the culture that we live in to follow him. And yet that culture continues to influence us. And at times, it can really influence us in strong ways that really um, are damaging us as a church and as individuals. And so in this series, we're looking at how to uh, combat that. How do we ensure that as individuals, we're not being influenced by our culture more than by our faith? First Corinthians, uh, this week, the series, um, kind of the big picture, is called Accountability in the Church. Accountability in the church. And so we're called to a standard of living as Christians. We're called to follow Jesus. And as a church, we're called to hold each other accountable. And today we're going to deal with some tough subjects. Um, The topic matter is kind of PG-13 maybe. I don't want to surprise anybody. The Bible um, is not rated PG. Do you know that? Like it deals with a lot of topics, adult themes. And today there's really no way around it. We're going to deal with some sexual issues. I'm not going to get graphic, but just so you know, that's what's coming. We have children's ministry upstairs <laughs> if, you, <laughs> if you want your children to be there. Um, I remember at some point years ago, I was either late high school, early college, and I found myself at home on an afternoon, daytime. That didn't happen ever, but I found myself in that situation. I don't know if I was sick. I can't really remember the details, but I turned on TV, which I believe at that time was just a little black and white, kind of 12-inch screen, got like three channels, and uh, I was watching TV, and I was flipping around, and all of a sudden, a show came on. I came to a show that was called uh, the Jerry Springer Show. I don't know if you've heard of that. Um, I don't remember how old I was, probably old enough to know that I shouldn't be watching the Jerry Springer Show. Um, Pretty salacious, pretty... uh, Whatever, is always dealing with extreme things. It got worse over time. Back in the late 80s, early 90s, it was, it was bad, but it wasn't as bad as it got. But I, I remember the show, I don't remember all the details, but I remember there was two individuals on there, a male and a female, and they were vehemently arguing for their right to live out and live um, and, and do their chosen profession, which at the time um, was frowned upon, maybe even illegal in some states, but they were defiant that they should be able to do and live how they wanted and do this occupation, and no one should tell them they can't. They're American citizens. They have the freedom to do whatever they want. I remember a lot of yelling and screaming and pounding and, uh, and this attitude, right? And I don't remember what the occupation was exactly, but it was some kind of sex work. And so here they were defiantly presenting their right to do what should have been and was shameful, and they should not have been proud of it, but they were, and they were pushing their right to to live that out. Um, Since then, uh, I think we've kind of lost our ability in our culture to have any shock value related to anything that people might want to do with their lives in relation to their sexual activity. We kind of have accepted, seems like we're open once again to polygamy, open relationships, um, open marriages, being pushed and promoted. Um, The idea of most people live together before they get married. That idea of having sex outside of marriage has kind of lost any pull in our culture that it might be wrong. 
And, and so we can see that slide in our culture away from the values that Scripture teaches. There was a time when culturally there was pressure against those things. At least there was an awareness that they might be wrong, even though a lot of people did it anyway, right? But there was still a cultural awareness, a value system that said these things are wrong. But today, pretty much anything's acceptable. People put it out there and, uh, and flaunt it and promote it and try to get other people to live the way they think is good. Do you recognize that cultural slide? Are you still sensitive when people, like I was that day when I saw these individuals, I knew what they were talking about was wrong. It was a little shocking. Do you feel that? Do you sense that when things around you move away from what God says is right and wrong? Or have you become numb to it? Have you become accepting? Um, what do we do as Christians? Do we kind of remain silent? Do we keep our opinions and views to ourselves? Do we um, not sort of speak up into those conversations when people are pushing agendas that we know aren't found in Scripture? Like, what do we do? How do we handle it? And uh, I know it's difficult, and there's some different opinions on it. Of course, I have the right opinion. <laughs> um, but, but my opinion, my view is that as a citizen of this country, the way this country was founded requires that I speak into the morals and the behaviors and the laws, if you will, that govern our country. It's pretty important. Um, as a citizen, I am responsible to speak to those things. And so to abdicate that responsibility, to me, is not being a good citizen, which the Bible calls me to be a good citizen. Now, the citizen, being a citizen in America is different than being a citizen in the Roman Empire, which the book that we're studying today, this is the context within the Roman Empire. Totally different government, totally different situation. But this country actually had some founding and basis in the moral laws and codes that are written in the Bible, the understanding and belief that those were right. And so um, a lot of freedom was given to citizens to speak into. And I know that argument, and I've heard many of them, you can't legislate morality, shouldn't impose your morals on others. <clears throat> you know laws impose morals on others, right? I mean, you know that's what laws do. So legislating morality is all that legislation does. It legislates morality. It's a silly argument. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. But because everyone legislates morality, every law legislates morality. And of course, legislation of morality is going to happen in a country that has laws, which we do. So, I mean, it doesn't matter. You can't get away from that. And so the idea that we, maybe as Christians who still believe the Bible, hold to that if you do, that you shouldn't speak into the laws and, and that type of thing is just, to me, um, it's just a silly argument. So I think we should. But we also have an approach that is biblical when it comes to that. We're not the moral police of the world. It's not my job to go, make, go around and make sure everybody lives the way I live. But I need to live the way I say I believe I. Uh, and live according to what I say I believe. That's pretty important. Um. A culture, in our culture especially, with a lot of freedom, as you know, there is a lot of responsibility as to how we handle ourselves. And a culture that loses its handle on morality and, uh, and even marriage and the relationship in marriage and how that all works, um, when that slides, then it leads to a path that leads down a path of destruction. And we can see that in cultures over the history of the world. And so 
as a family erodes, so does the culture, and our families are under attack, and they have been. Our children are under attack, and they have been. And so we have um, an issue to deal with. What are we going to do? How are we going to respond? And I think we better be pretty active, and I think we better be connected pretty strongly to what the Bible says. What is our source of authority, and where is the truth found? And the church in Corinth, again, different than us, was birthed in a culture that was pagan, Hellenistic. Um, It had no fear of God. And so uh, the belief system was based in kind of a a polytheism. Uh, You know, it was, um, there was a pantheon of gods and uh, and Rome kind of worshiped and played around with those gods, but those gods had human characteristics and character traits and it's kind of like a drama, kind of like comic books, you know. It wasn't uh, very there wasn't a high level of morality that those gods um, lived towards. And so they didn't have much to direct them. They didn't have a lot to give them um, uh, a code to live by that was good. And so the culture was very destructive, very harsh. One of the reasons that Christianity flourished within Rome is that women were treated better. Uh, men became good men who honored their marriage covenant, and treated their wives well, and didn't didn't um, go outside the marriage. There wasn't so much promiscuity. And, and all of that was discouraged in the church because of the moral codes that God called them to. And it was so revolutionary. It brought about such a better family unit and a better um, experience for people that they actually turned to it in mass within the Roman Empire. But this culture, when Paul, on his second missionary journey, comes to Corinth, probably around 50 A.D., and he establishes his church by preaching to the individuals there. He found not just a group of Roman slaves, which the city was founded on, but he found a cosmopolitan city with Jews and Greeks and Romans, a mixture of people, diversity. And he preached the gospel there, and there was a response to it. Um, this city, though, was a mess. And the believers there, as we found a few weeks ago, were not quick to grow, they were immature. And Paul says when he went there in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, he says, I had to treat you like unbelievers. You were so immature. You're babies, right? And he said, you still are. You're not growing up. You're still living according to your sin nature. And so what he has to deal with in this passage is something pretty intense, and he deals with it in a very intense way. It's because of their maturity in part that he takes the tack that he does. The city was base and perverse. Again, the culture was base and perverse. There was a saying to Corinthianize, that was a saying in, in ancient Rome, and that meant to live like a Corinthian. And what was implied there was to live to immoral excess of the worst kind. And so of all the Roman Empire, Corinth was one of the worst places morally to be. Yet Paul enters Corinth, and God gave him, Jesus spoke to him in a dream, to preach the gospel there without fear, that God did have some in that city that would turn to him. It was a tough place, and yet he preached there. And so five years later, likely, on his third missionary journey, he writes this letter from the city of Ephesus to the church in Corinth addressing some tough issues. And the first thing we see regarding accountability in the church and in relation to the culture is that we've got a guard in the church against becoming desensitized. We must not be desensitized to sin. 1 Corinthians 5, let's read the first two verses. I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you. 
something that even pagans don't do. I'm told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. You're so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning in sorrow and shame, and you should remove this man from your fellowship. Living in sin means sexual relations outside of marriage. I know that's a very narrow line to draw when it comes to sex. In our culture, we have made sex, uh, cheapened it, and made it into something that we do just for entertainment, recreation, to feel better, to get a little stress relief. Um, We uh, explore all kinds of sexual behavior in our culture. And like I said, really, nothing is off limits. And that has affected us in the church. It creeps in, whether it's the influence of pornography, the easy access on our phones to be able to um, get exposed to images that are... um, that are uh, damaging to our brains. Uh, They damage our view. Uh, It's actually a trauma to be exposed to pornography, and yet um, it's difficult, right? It's difficult because it's so easy to access, and we have a hard time resisting that, fighting against it. We're pulled to think that it's okay, it's not that big a deal. That's what our culture says. And then we end up in promiscuity. Like I said, most Christians live together before they get married. We just don't think it's that big a deal. What happens is our view of sex and what God created it to do, which is to be an incredibly powerful bond between a husband and wife, to create and help create through experience, an emotional, spiritual, deep connection that bonds us together, it loses its ability to do that. We have a very shallow, narrow view of it. And so we cheapen it. And that's what happens. And that's what was happening here. This case of a young man who had seduced his stepmother. Paul says, even the pagan world thinks that's bad. But you guys are proud of it. Now, we don't know the whole story. We don't know what's happening there. We don't know why they were participating in this, why they thought it was a good thing. But they did. They had been blinded to it. And again, because of their immaturity, they weren't addressing it. They weren't dealing with it. They weren't confronting this man and this woman and helping pull them in the right direction. They were celebrating it. They were proud of it. And Paul says, you need to get rid of this. It's a strong reaction that he prescribes. But it, and it's harsh. But it's because of, I think, in part, their immaturity. See, the church has a responsibility to represent God. And we, the people of the church, have a responsibility to represent God. And I know as well as you do that, I'm not perfect, and I don't perfectly do that, and neither do you. And so it's difficult because a lot of times we walk in here feeling like we shouldn't, right? Because we're humbled by our failures throughout the week, and we don't feel like we're measuring up as people are getting baptized. One of the struggles was, well, I don't feel like I'm, I haven't, I haven't got my life together enough. I, I haven't, you know, gotten rid of enough sin. I don't know that I'm worthy to get baptized. I'm like, well, thank God that getting baptized is not related to your behavior, your victory over sin. It's related to your faith in Jesus and your trust in him to forgive your sins. But see, we're set free then to move away from it. And we don't allow it in our churches. We don't promote it. And we're certainly not proud of it. We speak about it. And we talk about it in terms of humility and a struggle. But see, when the church starts to celebrate sin, we lose our voice in the culture. Before I moved here um, from Denver, I was working as a salesman. Downtown Denver was my territory, and I was a lighting salesman, nothing exciting. I was trying to sell light, light bulbs to maintenance guys who ran the big buildings downtown. And, and uh, one of my customers was a man who was a maintenance guy in a church. It was a very old, historic church, beautiful, ornate. 
And I went in there before I quit to move here. And I told him, hey, I'm not going to be working here anymore. I'm not going to be taking care of you. He said, oh, really? What's going on? I said, I'm moving western Nebraska. Where at? I told him, oh, yeah, I know where that's at. And uh, he said, what are you going to be doing? I said, well, I'm going to be a pastor in a church. And he said, oh, well, I got a question for you. He said, I don't, I don't want to sound judgmental. I don't want to sound critical. I, I, I care about people. I love people. I accept people. But he said, I work in this church. And in this church... They have gatherings of clergy for this denomination. I can't remember what denomination is, okay? I tried, I can't remember. But he said they gather, they come together, and he said there's, there's um, clergy pastors who are gay. They're homosexual. And you can tell they kind of flaunt it and promote it. They come here with their, their spouse or partner. And he said, listen, again, I'm not trying to be judgmental, critical. I, I really am not. I don't, I don't hate on anybody. Everybody's got whatever, do what you want to do. But he said in the church... Shouldn't it be that your pastors and clergy aren't living in sin? <laughs> I said, I'm not a, I'm not a church guy. I'm, not, I'm just saying, isn't the Bible say that's wrong? And of course, in our culture, very humbly and respectfully, and this isn't the only issue, I'm not picking on homosexuals or homosexuality. We as heterosexuals have got a lot of problems and issues with sex. We're not really doing a great job of setting an example. But, but you know, he noticed this. And, and it is a cultural issue that's being pressed. He's like, what, what do we do with this? And, you know, I know it's hard. In the name of love and acceptance, we're kind of called to celebrate and endorse all kinds of behavior. And especially same-sex relationships and marriages even, and now in the church. Like, it's okay for those people, right, for people that live that lifestyle to be pastors. And I've heard all kinds of arguments well, the Bible says this, but it doesn't really say it's wrong. One of the arguments is the Bible, when it's talking about homosexual relations, it's talking about, um, it's talking about it in a way that doesn't fit today. It's talking about prostitution. And yet we're talking about marriages and we're talking about relationships that are different, right? They're, certainly God is okay with marriage and he'd be okay if two adults who are uh, born this way and this is who they are and they get married, isn't that okay? I mean, isn't it mean and hateful to say that's wrong? And of course, the Bible, when it talks about homosexuality, the Bible's not rated PG. It gets very graphic. And it talks about actually the physical union that occurs. That is the nature of the conversation. So to say it's talking about just one component or aspect or in a certain situation, that's really not what the Bible, how the Bible addresses it, okay? And so again, that represents an ignorance of the Bible and what it has to say. I've heard the argument that the word homosexual doesn't occur in the Bible until modern times. It wasn't really used in the, in the older, more ancient versions of the Bible. And so really it's a modern attempt to make something wrong. God really didn't intend to make wrong. Well, Romans chapter 1, once again, doesn't need to use the word homosexual to describe the type of relationships. It talks about women... Um, um, turning away from the natural relationship with a man and burning in lust for other women and having a relationship with them. And the same for men. So again, the word homosexual doesn't need to be used in the Bible for us to be clear on what God is saying is wrong. And so again, you need to understand that people that come with an agenda trying to argue you off of your position, if you hold it, that this isn't of God and it's not right and it's not how he wants us to live, 
that these arguments are not made by people that respect the Bible, that really trying to understand God's heart. They're typically made by people who are just trying to move you from your position. And you need to know that. That's the motives most of the time behind it. I've also heard that um, kind of the argument, some in my family use this, that the Bible isn't meant to be taken literally. Don't you understand, you silly person? You're, you're uh, holding to a view of the Bible that isn't, was never intended. It, it's not meant to be taken literally. Everybody knows that. Well, very simply, the problem with that is then Jesus isn't real. His death on the cross didn't matter because it didn't even necessarily happen. You don't have sin that you need to be forgiven of. And the whole thing is neutered of any meaning. It doesn't have any power. It's just mythology. It's just a, a silly book of ideas and, and it's fun to think about and play with, but it, it's not going to change your life and it doesn't really matter. And so again, that argument's not made by people that respect the Bible. It's made by people that don't want to follow what it says. Um, I know the argument that God created me this way and how cruel of a God to say that that's wrong or that I can't live in a way that he made me. And the other side of it is that he made me this way so he doesn't make mistakes, so he intended for me to be this kind of person, whether it's a boy who believes he's uh, biologically a boy, but he really uh, is a, a, a woman or a female, and then vice versa, right? That whole discussion that's going on, and then, of course, um, the, the, the same-sex attraction thing that's going on, all that stuff. It, it, there's this argument that God made me this way. I've been this way since I was born. And uh, actually, I don't really have an issue with that argument. It doesn't affect whether it's right or wrong. And here's the reason that God made me, I was born, as far as I can remember, with some sinful appetites that God says are wrong in the scriptures. And here's the thing, it's to misunderstand the whole narrative of the Bible, to misunderstand the whole story, the whole account of reality, which is that in the beginning, Adam and Eve were put in a garden, and they were not in sin. They were pure, innocent And when their morality and character was tested, when God said, don't eat this tree, and they ate of it, what entered the world was sin. A curse fell over all creation. And so guess what? Yeah, I'm born in a way God didn't intend for me to be born. I came out of the womb with sin. Like I tell you, I've got some little grandbabies, and they're beautiful, and they look angelic, but they are little sinners. Do not be fooled by that cute face. Don't do it. Look, I'm not, I'm making light of it, but it's not a light issue. That's the reality. That's what the Bible teaches us. You may not agree with it. You may not like it. A lot of people want to believe we're all good. We're all wonderful. We come, and then, you know, people and society and our culture makes us bad. The Bible says it's in us. It's in every fiber of our being, every molecule. It's in our DNA, sin. We need rescued. We need forgiven. And yes, we're all going to have to turn from things in us that feel like we were born that way, right? But God calls us to a different way to live. And that's the hope that we have in the gospel. As this passage continues, we find that there's an addressing of this sin issue within the church that, again, is pretty aggressive. It requires taking action that is kind of hard. See, we must love enough to discipline in the church. In uh, verses 
3 through 5, he goes on to say this, even though I am not with you in person, I'm with you in spirit. And as though I were there, I have already passed judgment on this man in the name of the Lord Jesus. You must call a meeting of the church. I will be present with you in spirit, and so will the power of our Lord Jesus. Then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. Again, an aggressive reaction to this sinful behavior. Paul says you need to get him out of your church. Now that's an extreme action. And part of the reason I want you to know, I believe he was taking that action or recommending it, commanding it really, is because this church was too immature to handle someone living this way and correct them. It was just influencing them. They were pulled into it to think that it was okay and they were celebrating and he's like, you can't handle this. You need to get rid of it. And again, I want you to hear the heart behind it though. Turn him over to Satan. What, what in the world does that mean? I mean, if a person belongs to Jesus, what do we do and turn him over to Satan? Satan's going to destroy. Well, Paul's saying in this case, and again, he knows the person, he knows the situation, that there isn't a a willingness out of humility to acknowledge the sin. There's a pride in it. There's a defiance in it. And there's times where an individual should not experience the blessing, the covering of the church, the relationships that are here. When they're defiantly living in sin, right, unrepentant, unwilling to acknowledge, proud of it, Paul's like, they need to be turned over to Satan to experience the full weight of their decisions. So their sin nature will consume them and the devil will destroy them and their body will be destroyed. That's what it means. So their flesh will be destroyed, burned up. But remember, hear his heart so that his soul will be saved. So that his soul will be saved. See, Paul, even in prescribing this harsh judgment, cares about this guy. And a lot of people think in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, when Paul talks about, hey, it's been long enough, you've, you've ostracized this person, they've been through enough punishment, you need to bring them back in, it's going to destroy them, that it might be this individual. And so there's a recovery of it. Don't read the Bible uh, in little chunks. See the picture and the heart of God behind it. This is harsh. But the reason is that sometimes it's the only answer. It's the only way to get us corrected. Um. I heard a testimony of Jim Baker. I remember back in the 80s, he was a TV evangelist, and he got caught up in corruption, and he ended up imprisoned. And there was a pastor who went to see him, asked him about how he was doing and this experience of being in prison and out of the church and fully consumed with his sin. He said, man, I thank God that God corrected me because I was not fearful of God. I lost my fear of God, and I was doing whatever I wanted, and I was on a path of destruction, but God corrected me. He loved me enough to stop me from going down that road. This is the heart of God. Hebrews 12, verse 4. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes each one he accepts as his child. Sin is destructive. It will destroy us. And God loves us enough to correct. He loves us enough to say no. And much of what I see in our culture is some people who don't want to be told no. 
They want to do whatever they want. And if somebody says no, they get mad and throw a fit, kind of like my kids did and do, right, at times. And they go, you hate me. You don't love me. That's why you're telling me no. If you love me, you let me do whatever I want. That's called permissiveness, and it's not love. The Bible says spare punishment or discipline, and you'll spoil your children. God is a good father, and so he's willing to do whatever it takes to rescue us, to save us. And at times that means turning us over to our sinful nature. When we're defiant, we will not repent. We will not relent. Our culture wants to talk about love and grace, right? And those warm, fuzzy feelings we get from that. And listen, we are a church of love and grace. We're not kicking people out of our church because you're wrestling with sin. We don't run around looking for, you know, to do this all the time. I don't even think that's appropriate or right. I don't think even what this passage means. There's other ways to handle it, and we do because we have a strong church with strong leadership. But the thing is that um, there is a call to correction and to discipline. And just talking about love and grace cheapens what it really is. If we don't recognize that we have sin in our lives, if we don't recognize our battle with sin, and if we're not fighting it, then grace and love really don't have any meaning. As we go on in this passage, we learn that we must never be proud of sin, and that's one of the things that was happening here. Verses 6 through 8, your boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads throughout the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Then you will be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is really what you are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So let us celebrate the festival, not with the old bread of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread of sincerity and truth. What is he talking about here with this bread and yeast thing? I mean, uh, this is confusing maybe, but the truth is that this teaching goes back to uh, the story in the Old Testament of when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt and they were being led out of that slavery by God. And so um, they had uh, the 10 plagues that God was um, enacting or imposing on Egypt and on Pharaoh, um, breaking his will down so that he would release the people of Israel. And the last plague was called, um, it was the plague of death where the oldest child in each home was going to die and the angel of death was going to come and act this judgment and um, God taught the Israelites in order for them to be protected they had to kill a lamb and put the blood over the doorposts of their home and they had to make some bread unleavened or without yeast and they had to be prepared to leave quickly and that that blood over the doorposts would cause the angel of death to pass over their house and so this Passover was something that the Jews continued to celebrate and practice, remembering what God had done for them. And so Paul says here, he's using this example, a metaphor again of yeast a lot of times in the Bible represented sin. And Jesus used it that way. And so he's reminding them that the yeast of sin has permeated their church and they need to get rid of it so that they can really reflect people who have been saved by the blood of Jesus. And where God has passed over them in judgment and instead loves them and forgives them and is able to have a relationship with them. It's interesting that yeast was first used historically as far as as I could tell in my research this week in Egypt. 
And uh, it occurs naturally in nature, but it's interesting that the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Perhaps that's where they began to use yeast. It's used in the making of alcohol, right, beer and meat and stuff, and then it's also used in bread. And so, um, again, it's just an illustration. It's not that yeast is bad, okay? But he's just saying in, the, in, the, um, in this metaphor of bread and yeast that the yeast represents sin. And he wants them to move away from their old life of sin and wickedness and disobedience to God to a life of sincerity and obedience. This is the heart of God, and this is what we need to move towards. Sin is destructive. It will destroy our lives. And the church has a responsibility to uphold the standard of God. We represent God in the world. And so we must hold to that. Again, we're not perfect. We battle with it. And so we walk with humility Right with, a, with a, a humble heart, acknowledging our battles with sin, but never being proud of it. Never saying, well, it's just part of my, you know, I, got, I know I got a bad temper, but it's just, part of my, uh, it's just part of my family of origin. It's just something we do, you know. No, we acknowledge that if God says it's wrong, it's wrong. And we hold to that standard. We're not perfect in it. So we're gonna have to be humble and we're gonna have to acknowledge that. And yet this is what we're called to do. If we miss the standard, we start to slide off the mark then like my maintenance guy in Denver, people are going to say, what are you guys doing? Who are you? You think you can just do whatever you want? And then we lose our voice of representing God in the world. We are not the moral police, okay? But we are to represent the standard of God. We're to be the light on a hill. We're to be the salt of the earth, as Jesus said. And so we've got to maintain that standard by living according to his rules his instructions to us. And so the last thing we see in this passage is we must, as a church, have expectations and we must have standards. Let's read the last few verses of 1 Corinthians 5. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I was not talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, yet indulges in sexual sin, or is greedy, or worships idols, or is abusive, or is a drunkard, or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside. But as the scripture says, he must remove the evil person from among you. Claiming to be a Christian changes things. I mean, we're a church that invites everybody. Anybody can come and listen and explore and seek and search, right? But we're going to preach the truth of what God's word says. And so that anyone who comes here is going to hear that. And sometimes it'll be offensive and they'll want to leave. Sometimes they'll say, I don't agree with that. Sometimes they'll hear God and they'll come to Christ as the people that got baptized today. And so it's just our job to proclaim the truth. But we could proclaim the truth in love. And I'll tell you again, we're not a church running around trying to kick people out, trying to, you know, deal aggressively with people that are caught in sin. In fact, in Galatians chapter 6, Paul gives a different approach. And I think for a church that has mature leadership, that is strong, that's able to pull people in the right direction, this is what he prescribes. He says to the church in Galatia, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be 
careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. If you think you are too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You are not that important. We are to help each other. And that's what we do. But there are times where the leadership of the church dealing with a particular situation or issue has to remove somebody. It's biblical and it's right, and in certain situations it has to be done. But remember, we're the people of God. We speak the truth in love. It's not our job to run around yelling and screaming at people. There's a lot of churches that come with the truth in anger, and it's easy to get angry at the culture around us and at things that are being done. That's not from God. We are called to be motivated out of a love for the people around us and to humbly, gently speak the truth out of that loving motivation. That's what Jesus did. He confronted a lot of sin in his time as he walked the earth, but every person that interacted with him knew that his heart was for them. They didn't always listen. They didn't always agree. Sometimes they walked away disappointed, but they got to hear the truth in a way that could permeate their heart. And I'll tell you, anger and hatred doesn't help people hear the truth. It creates a defensive response and it pushes people away. That's not what God does. And so we need to help each other. We need to be very humble, bearers of the standard of God's truth. But as a church, that's what we're called to. You and I will stand before God someday and answer for how we handled our position in our time. Did we represent Jesus? Did we hold up the standard of truth? Did we represent him, right, the way he really is? Or did we cave in? Did we give in? Did we lose our voice? And there's churches all over America, all over the world, down through all the history of time, that in the, in the desire to stay connected and relevant in the culture, they've given up their voice of truth, and they lose their impact. That is what happens. And so, again, very humbly, very gently, imperfectly, we want to hold up the standard of what God says. It's right. It's the only way to find life. And we hear all the time the angry people that say you don't love and you're hateful because you hold this standard. But what we don't hear are the stories like Brady Cohn, who came and shared in our church, has a ministry to, to folks that struggle with same-sex attraction. We don't hear the people who come out of a lifestyle that does not reflect God's best at all for them. We don't hear those stories very often, but they're there. And when a church stands on the truth and lifts up the truth humbly in love, that allows people to come out of bondage to sin into light. And that's where life comes from. That's our job. And so again, very humbly, we try to fill that role as a church in our time. During the early days of the Salvation Army, William Booth and his associates were bitterly attacked by the press, or in the press, by religious leaders, government leaders alike. Whenever his son, Bramwell, showed Booth a newspaper article, the general would reply, Bramwell, 50 years hence, it will matter very little indeed how these people treated us. It will matter a great deal how we dealt with the work of God. God, thank you for calling us to know you, to have a relationship with you, to walk with you, to experience your forgiveness and your grace and your love. And yes, your discipline and punishment and correction, all because you love us and you want us to walk with you. You don't want us to live in bondage to sin. You want us to be set free. And so, Father, we thank you for your heart and your desire and your passion for us that moves you to act on our behalf and to wrestle with us as we battle with sin. 
God, help us in our world to represent you, to represent the truth, to hold you up with humility and with love as our motive and to say to the world, this is what the truth is. This is who God is. Father, we just want to point to you. I want people to see Jesus in and through our church, in and through our lives. Father, help us to hold that standard high, to be a light on a hill, to be the salt of the earth, to be the hope of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.